And now the passage that R.T. will be speaking on, I'm going to read for you. It's uh, from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, beginning at verse 11. But Mary stood outside by the tomb, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Now when she'd said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. Did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, So if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and, and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your Holy Spirit to rest upon every mind in this place, that their perception of what I say will be received, heard, and applied as you intend. And cleanse my tongue that I might be your transparent instrument to convey everything that needs to be said, nothing that doesn't need to be said. Grant that this will be a life-changing word, and a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When what you desire more than anything in the world is given to you, chances are it won't be what you expected. More than anything in the world, Mary Magdalene wanted to see Jesus again. But when she saw him, things did not turn out as she had hoped. Mary Magdalene was the first to arrive at the tomb, the last to leave. Peter and John were the last to arrive and the first to leave. And I've thought about this a lot. I don't think you can make the case that women show more devotion or greater worship than men, but sometimes you can get that impression. Because here was Mary Magdalene, so devoted to Jesus. And you need to know, this was a totally non-sexual love. She was probably, her past, that of a prostitute. We don't know that for sure. Doesn't say that she was a prostitute, but she was from Magdala, 
and it was known as the center of prostitution, we know that Jesus had cast seven devils out of her. When he saw her, for the first time in her life, she was treated with respect. She wasn't used to a man being respectful to her, but Jesus was the first man she had ever come across that didn't want something from her, but gave her great dignity. You know, it's interesting that in most churches today, women outnumber men. I think if you look around, that's the case. This is nothing unusual, nothing new. For example, in Luke 17, verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and not a few prominent women. And in Acts chapter 16, we hear of a prominent woman who was a businesswoman. She sold purple. The Lord opened the heart of Lydia, and she was a strategic figure in the early church. And the fact that the women were there at the cross of Jesus, three Marys, only one disciple, John, at the last minute showed up to stay beside Mary, the mother of Jesus. And the first at the tomb is Mary Magdalene. You can make a case that this is God's affirmation of women. Never will forget when I was mem- uh, minister at West at uh, Lauderdale Manors Baptist Church in Fort Lauderdale many years ago. One Monday, the church treasurer had all the money from the Sunday before, and it was laying out on a table, and she said, would I watch the money, because she had to go make an errand, she'd be back in 10 minutes. I said, sure. I did something I should not have done. I couldn't resist looking at all those checks that came in to see who tithed and who didn't and whether what they gave was tithe and so forth, because I knew what they made, and I was shocked. The people with the highest incomes in my church were proportionately giving the least. Those who were tithing were the single moms, the divorcees, and the widows. I'll never forget it as long as I live. It's often that way today. Well, now what we have here is Mary Magdalene, one of Jesus' best-known converts, who is broken-hearted over the fact that Jesus had died on the cross. Now, she was probably not aware of Jesus teaching to the disciples that he would ra- be raised from the dead. It's interesting. She probably did not know of the comment that Jesus made to the twelve that the third day would be raised. And yet she's the one that was first to go to the tomb and stayed there. We're told in Matthew 26, 56 that all of the disciples forsook him and fled. They who knew in advance that he was going to be crucified and be raised from the dead. And so she was an example of the accusations that were hurled at Jesus again and again that he would sit and mix with sinners 
But Jesus was never ashamed of that. He, he pleaded guilty. You've got that right. He was a friend of sinners. But she was at the cross sobbing her heart out. And now at the empty tomb because she couldn't figure it out. How dare they do this to him, but how could he let them do it? After all, anybody that could raise Lazarus from the dead, who could feed 5,000 with loaves and fish, could have stopped them from crucifying him. She knew that. And yet, he let them crucify him. And she kept thinking, well, he's not going to die. He's not going to die. Because any minute now, you know, he's going to show his power. And then when he breathed his last, and it was dead, she felt betrayed. How could he do this? Why weren't we warned? You've heard me talk, some of you, about breaking the betrayal barrier. In the 20th century, it was a great aeronautical feat when science enabled a plane to fly faster than the speed of sound, breaking the sound barrier. But there's something more remarkable than that, and it's what everyone is called to do today, is to break the betrayal barrier. When you feel God has let you down, you can't explain why this could happen. It doesn't add up. But you persist in faith. And what we have here with Mary Magdalene is persistent faith. She broke the betrayal barrier. Well, now, I want us to see four things from this passage today. Colin read to you. The first is tears. We're told that Mary stood outside the tomb crying and she wept. The first time the word tears appears in the Bible is in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 5. Uh, there is an old-fashioned uh, theological point of view called law of first mention. I think you could push it too far. and It doesn't always fit. But the idea being, the first time a word appears... It keeps that meaning right throughout Scripture. And if that is a valid way to look at it, when you consider the first time the word tears appears in the Bible, it's when Hezekiah had just been told by Isaiah the prophet, your time is up, you're going to die, what you've got, you're not going to get well, get your house in order, it's over. Hezekiah started to cry. And he turns his face to the wall and pleads with God, pleads with him. Do you know what? Isaiah came back and said, the Lord has heard your prayer. And he added this word, he has seen your tears. If we're to take law of first mention as a valid way to look at things, it shows that tears get God's attention. Are you wanting God's attention? Try tears. <laughs> tears normally don't come because of physical pain, but because of a deep hurt. Try tears. There was that occasion when Jesus saw this widow. 
in Nain. Luke 7, verse 11. Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, lo and behold, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Well, Jesus hadn't gone to do anything for her, but when he saw her crying, he stopped what he was doing, and he went straight to her. You know what he said to her? Don't cry. Don't cry. And instantly, he raised that young man from the dead, right on the spot. You can make the case that God cannot stand tears. Try tears. Well, Jesus saw her tears and asked a question. Why are you crying? By the way, whenever God asks a question, he's not looking for information. He knew exactly why she was crying. He stoops to our level in order to get our attention. And you have on display here what I have sometimes called the divine tease. He appears distant. It looks like he's going to do one thing to see what you will do in response. Take when Jesus appeared to the two men on the road to Emmaus, and he stopped and, and spoke to them and expounded the Old Testament about himself and the Psalms. And, and then he made as though he was going to keep going further, and they said, please don't go, please. He wanted to see what they would do. And so now, Jesus, asking her, why are you crying? And addresses her as, woman, woman, why are you crying? Sometimes God plays hard to get. And sometimes God can appear to be distant. Well, as Martin Luther used to put it, you must know God as an enemy before you can know Him as a friend. And there are times when the same Lord that you've been having fellowship with, and it was going so well, all of a sudden seems cold and distant. And now here comes Jesus, who knew how Mary felt about her, and says, Woman, why are you crying? And she was crying. This is just to let you know that it's okay to cry on Easter. Perhaps you're here today, and... You should be rejoicing that Jesus was raised from the dead. You should be thrilled, but the truth is, your heart is heavy, heavy. It's okay to cry on Easter. But Jesus will ask you, why are you crying? Tears. Second, truth. Well, what wasn't true? Well, it wasn't true that Jesus was the gardener. She thought it was the gardener. Her tears kept her from seeing Jesus. It was not true that Jesus did not know why she was crying. He knew exactly why she was crying. And if you're filled with sadness today, you're filled with grief, you're hurt, severe disappointment, the withholding of vindication, that financial reverse, nothing has gone right, and 
everybody around you rejoicing that it's Easter. But you're just sad. The truth is, Jesus knows why you're crying. And he's not going to moralize you. He's not going to say, shame on you, it's Easter. No, it's okay to cry on Easter. Well, the answer is, says Mary Magdalene, they've taken my Lord away. Please show me where he is. Well, it wasn't true that they had taken the Lord away. And sometimes things that have no foundation will make us cry. Some things where there's no basis of truth, we cry. They hadn't taken the Lord away, but she was crying because she thought that was the case. But I can tell you what was true. What was true is that it was Jesus there the whole time watching the entire scenario. By the way, the scenario was a setup. It would only last so long. The Lord knows just how much we can bear. I think the first verse any new Christian should memorize, whatever translation, is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There's no temptation. And the Greek word can mean trial, testing. There's no testing given you but what is common to everybody. But God knows what you're being tempted of. He knows why you're being tested. And he always gives a way of escape that you'll be able to bear it. He's, he will show up. He's never too late. He's never too early. He's always just on time. Well, she recognized Jesus when he called her name. Now, when he said, woman, she didn't know him. But when she said, Mary, she recognized his voice. John 10, 27, my sheep know my voice. Have you learned to know his voice? Calvin called it the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit, whereby you know you're not being deceived. You recognize that voice. And Jesus simply called her by name. I've wondered about this. He would know how it normally would sound to her. She would recognize the way he would call her name. Did he say, Mary? Did he say, Mary? Did he say, Mary? But once... She heard her name. She couldn't believe what was happening. It was the moment of greatest excitement in her life. And she ran to him and embraced him and hugged him. And she was just hanging on to him. This time sobbing for joy. She couldn't believe it. It's too good to be true. She got Jesus back. We all like the sound of our name. Proverbs 22 verse 1. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. Jesus said to the disciples who came to him and said, Lord, you're not going to believe this. Even the demons are subject to your name. And Jesus said, oh, you're rejoicing about that, are you? Let me tell you what to rejoice about. 
that your names are written in heaven. That is what you should rejoice about today. Isaiah 43, Fear not, O Israel, I have called you by your name. We all like the sound of our name. People will come up to me and say, Do you remember my name? And how often I have wished, Ooh, if only I could, because I know what would it mean to them. I can't always say that I do remember your name. But names are very important in Scripture. And there's a reason that you have your name. As a matter of fact, the parable in the rich man and Lazarus, it's interesting. Luke 16, the rich man went to hell. We don't know his name. But we know the name of the one who went to heaven, Lazarus. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. A friend of mine who was a, a chaplain in a mental institution in Texas told me that he was there when he witnessed an old lady who would walk up and down the corridor all day long, seven days a week, crying out, does anybody here know my name? Does anybody here know my name all day long? The greatest question you can ask, is my name written there? When I was back in the hills of Kentucky, we used to sing this song, Lord, I care not for riches, neither silver nor gold. I would make sure of heaven. I would enter the fold. In the book of thy kingdom, with its pages so fair, tell me, Jesus, my Savior, is my name written there? Is my name written? there on the page white and fair in the book of thy kingdom is my name written there question is your name written there Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, John said, I saw a great white throne, and one sat on it, from whose face heaven and earth fled away. The books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. Whoever was not found and written in that book was cast into the lake of fire. Is your name written there? Has God had to do something to get your attention? Try tears. Some years ago, I was given a wonderful invitation to preach. I was invited by the pastor of the Free Church of Scotland in Dundee to preach in the pulpit of the great Robert Murray McShane. He was a legend saw true revival in his day. 
died at the age of 29. His Bible reading plan is one that I've used for 40 years. Robert Murray McShane, a legend. Six months after he died, a young minister came to Dundee to inquire more about Robert Murray McShane, to find out what he could. And an elder was in the church building. The young minister says, tell me about Robert Murray McShane, his success, and is there any way I could have success like that? Well, the elder says, come with me. And he took the young minister into McShane's office and said, here, sit at his desk. All right. Now he said, put one elbow on the table, put the other elbow on the table, put your head in your hands, and let the tears flow. And then the elder says, come with me. He took him to Robert Murray McShane's pulpit and said, stand here. Put one elbow on the pulpit and the other down here like that. Put your head in your hands and let the tears flow. When they found Robert Murray McShane after he died, they found that in his trousers was a note that was written to him the Sunday before he died. A man came to hear Merrick McShane preach and said, I wasn't a Christian. I was determined not to be. But he said, the moment you stood up and I saw your face, I was converted just like that. God notices tears. Try tears. But the truth is that God knew why Mary was crying. It wasn't the gardener. They had not taken the Lord away. The truth is, it was Jesus. It was Jesus raised from the dead. But now I come to the third thing, transition. I want to introduce to you now what is probably the main point of this scenario. Because far more was at stake than Jesus letting Mary know he was alive. She had a lesson to learn. A very important lesson. She had to learn how to make the transition from the natural level to the spiritual level. Have you ever had to make a, 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 a transition like that? Have you ever had to learn a lesson like that? Going from the natural to the spiritual. You see, the natural is when Mary sees it's Jesus. And she's so happy. She is so happy. And she embraces him. So wonderful. It's so wonderful. I've got you back. I've got you back. Oh, oh this is so wonderful. And then Jesus had to do something that would be painful for her and perhaps painful for him. He said to her, Mary, stop clinging to me. Stop clinging to me. I've not a, yet ascended to the Father. So go instead and tell my brothers that I'm returning to my Father 
and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary had to make that transition. You see, when she saw that it was him, she recognized her name, and she recognized his voice. She thought she was going to get the old days back. And life with Jesus as she knew it, it was so wonderful. But sometimes something that is so sweet to us, it can only be sweet so long because there's more to do. I'm fascinated with this verse in the book of Revelation. I don't say that I understand it, but I'll read it. Revelation chapter 10, verse 9. John says, I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So for Mary, Mary Magdalene, Jesus' famous convert, it would be a completely new world out there for her. She thought it would be business as usual, going back to the way it always was. But no, life with Jesus as she knew it was not going to be repeated ever again. A completely new world was waiting her. Nothing would be the same. Jesus would now go to the right hand of God, and from now on she would pray to the Father in Jesus' name. From now on she would live by faith, not by sight. Have you had to make this transition? I was talking to a man a few weeks ago from Brazil. He was converted from a great life of sin. And uh, God gave him wonderful things and spectacular manifestations, unlike anything I've had. And when he told me about them, I was amazed. And then he took uh, T.R. and me to, to lunch in Rio de Janeiro to a famous Brazilian restaurant. All the American restaurants copy after that one. This was the original. But he wanted to tell me how real God had been, and I believed him. But he said, Dr. Kendall, they've stopped. I don't have them anymore. I don't have them anymore. I said, God is wanting you to make the transition from what has been so natural and easy to a higher level. Take when Moses saw the burning bush. It was on fire. And after an hour or two, the same bush on fire isn't consumed. And Moses says, well, I'm going to go see what this is. And he just walks up and God says, stop. Don't come any closer. Take off your shoes. You are on holy ground. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What Moses heard was more important than what he saw. Mary needed to make the transition to realize that what Jesus would say to her, his word, more important than even seeing him raised from the dead, faith is based on hearing, not seeing. And it comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. 
So do you know that all of God's chosen people must make this transition? There were those in the church at Corinth, after they'd been saved a couple of years, still living on milk. Still living on milk. And according to Hebrews chapter 5, the writer rebukes those Hebrew Christians, said, by now you ought to be teachers. You're still on a diet of milk. And I wonder, could it be anybody here like that? If you haven't learned anything new in the last five years, you like the same old thing. You want to come to church, gives you a pious feeling, you feel better for going here. But how real is God? What have you learned? Have you made the transition from the natural to the spiritual? This is why Colin Dye wanted me to do this school of theology. I suppose if some of you do well to come to that, it will not be milk. It'll be easy to digest, but it will be meat. And this will show how much you love God and that you're willing to make the effort that you want to learn things like this. Moses heard God speak. What he heard was more important than what he saw. Do you know, Abraham had to make a most painful transition. The more I look at this, and I was reading it the other day, Here's what it was. Abraham's son Ishmael, who he had through Hagar, he assumed that Ishmael was going to be the promised child. You know the story. God said to Abraham when he was 85 years old, Sarah was 75, they didn't have any children. God said to Abraham, count the stars, so will your seed be. And Abraham Believed it, and it was counted for righteousness. But after a year or two, and he thought, any day now, Sarah will get pregnant. She didn't. Well, they come up with this idea, not a good one. Sleep with Hagar. It'll be your seed. If it's a male child, that'll be it. Well, it wasn't what Abraham was counting on, but he slept with Hagar. Ishmael was born, and Abraham adjusted and for the next 13 years, Abraham sincerely believes that Ishmael is the promised son. Not only that, by that time, that's his only son, Ishmael. He's devoted to Ishmael. That's his boy. It's his firstborn. And then one day, God said to Abraham, sorry about this, but Ishmael's not your promised son after all. Sarah will conceive. Isaac is coming. And immediately, Abraham says, Oh, no, 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 please, please, let it be Ishmael. Read it, Genesis 17. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Sorry, Abraham. It's going to be Isaac, and that's not all. You're going to have to let Ishmael go. And you read about it in Genesis 21. I wonder how Abraham stood the pain. We're told that he took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and sent her off with little Ishmael. He would never see Ishmael again. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Bathsheba, Beersheba. What a painful moment. Making the transition 
from what has been natural to you to the spiritual. Not easy. It means God saying, you've been in your comfort zone too long. It's time to leave your comfort zone. You see, all of God's chosen people have to make this transition. Not all do it. Some say, no, I want to stay in my comfort zone. I like things as they are. Thank you very much. One day God said to Peter, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, you know, when you were young, you just did what you wanted to do. You went where you wanted to go. You did as you pleased. But when you're old, you're going to be taken somewhere where you don't want to go. They're going to stretch out your hands. And it was Jesus' way of saying the way Peter was going to die, by crucifixion. Peter made the transition. And some years later, in Rome, they took him. And Peter had one dying request. Please crucify me upside down. I don't... I'm not worthy to die like my Lord. But he made the transition. And could it be that God is saying something like that to you? Well... Tears, truth, transition, transformation. Mary made the transition. She accepted Jesus' loving rebuke, don't cling to me. And she was prepared to make the transition from the natural to the spiritual. And guess what? God gave her an authority. She had the privilege of going to the 11 disciples and say, I have seen the Lord. What an affirmation to Mary. She wouldn't leave the tomb. She stayed there. It was worth waiting for. Well, she had hoped that seeing Jesus raised from the dead meant business as usual. Now Rome will be overthrown. Israel will be put on the map. All that the disciples were hoping for, it's going to happen. Wrong. Wasn't going to be like that at all. She wanted to go back the way it was. Have you ever heard this phrase, you can't go home? I remember years ago, Louise and I went back to Ashland, Kentucky, and T.R. and Melissa were young, and I was so keen that they see the home in which I was brought up in Ashland, Kentucky, 1917 Hilton Avenue in Ashland. And we went, and I couldn't find it. I thought, well, 1970, yeah, it says 1970, this is Hilton Avenue. They'd cut down the big cherry tree that was in the front yard. They'd taken away the porch that we used to sit on, remodeled. It was unrecognizable. I just never wanted to go back. But it taught me a lesson. You can't go home. You might be wanting to go back to the old way. Do what you used to do. You can't go home. But she'd been transformed, this Mary. And she accepted the challenge she never thought she'd have to make. We must all be reconciled to the fact 
that when Jesus is raised from the dead, nothing will ever be the same again. Well, Jesus would go to the right hand of the Father. Rome's not going to be overthrown. In fact, she would learn that God has an elect people. That over the next few years, as it turned out, so far, 2,000 years. How many have been saved in the last 2,000 years? If Jesus had stopped right there, he would have had a family, but it would be small. Romans 8.29, whom he predestined, he called. Jesus was predestined to be the firstborn among many brethren. Many. How many? Well, John on the Isle of Patmos said, that was a number no man could count. No one could count millions and millions and billions. Mary, don't claim to me. I've got to go to my father. There are others to be saved. The first to arrive, the last to leave. All because she sought the Lord as the disciples had not sought him. She loved him as they hadn't loved him. When they went home, she stayed around. I'm not leaving. And look how she was rewarded. The reward was worth waiting for. Are you, Mary Magdalene? Are you looking at Jesus, but you can't see him because of your tears? Is he seeming to be distant from you right now? Then remember, just when she needed to hear the sound of his voice, he called her by name. He calls you by name. But the question is, is your name written there? On that page, white and fair, in the book of all ages, in the book of your kingdom, is your name written there? That great white throne, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, whoever had their name written were the ones that escaped the punishment to come. Whoever was not written was cast into the lake of fire. Is your name written there? If you've got any doubt whether your name is written there, you need to listen to me right now. If you were to stand before that great white throne and God were to ask you, he, he could do, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? What would you say? If you don't know what to say, I'm going to give you a prayer to pray. You don't need to close your eyes. Don't need to say it out loud. No need for that. He'll see your heart. Just say right now, Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. I'm sorry for my sins. Wash my sins away by your blood. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. As best as I know how, I give you my life. That's it.